Welcome to Happy Hour on the Fringe. Fringe Arts is Philadelphia's premier presenter of contemporary performing arts. I'm Raina Searles, marketing manager here at Fringe Arts, and I invite you to pour one up and enjoy our conversations with some of the most imaginative people on this plane of existence. And I am Katie Dimmers, artistic producer at Fringe Arts. Today we're excited to talk about The Pursuit of Happiness, a work by Nature Theater of Oklahoma and NMAP that will be part of our Fringe Festival this September. Today, we're pleased to welcome into conversation Pavel Liska and Kelly Copper from Nature Theater of Oklahoma. Welcome. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining us today remotely. I know you guys are not based in Philadelphia, so we're excited that we can have this conversation. And just to start us all off, since it's happy hour on the Fringe, what are you guys drinking? I'm drinking a pineapple juice from this uh, cleanse that I'm doing today. Delicious. <laughs> and I've got a coffee. <laughs> awesome. I'm drinking a big glass of water because we are in the midst of a heat wave in Philadelphia. Yes, same. <laughs> so diving into Pursuit of Happiness, um, we're going to talk a lot more about the piece and the history of the piece, but just for audiences contemplating coming to see the show, what can they expect when they walk in? What do you want audiences to know in advance about this work? Well, they'll they'll walk in and see our set, which is a kind of a saloon, and uh, they should come in. I mean, ideally, when you make a piece of theater, you hope to undo people's expectations. So whenever somebody always asks us uh, what should people expect, it's a kind of a tricky question. You want them to... You you almost want to lie to people because ultimately you don't want to satisfy their expectations. So I don't want to lie to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I know what you mean because I I have seen The Pursuit of Happiness before. I saw it when it premiered in the United States um, as part of Under the Radar, which is a festival every January um, at New York University Skirball Theater. And I think the set is definitely the first thing that catches people is that the piece is set in this kind of stereotypical Western bar. Um, and then for the first couple of minutes, it starts with these kind of, they almost look like shots or some kind of other drink being kind of squished across the long bar. And it really kind of sets up this dynamic relationship between the players. And then it goes off into its own universe. <laughs> Very much so, and totally defined my expectations as someone who was familiar with the, the work of Nature Theater of Oklahoma, but didn't know enough and certainly didn't expect the piece to ultimately end up in Baghdad, where it does. So um, things, things, people are really in for a series of adventures in this work. But I wonder, Kelly and Pablo, if you can tell us a little bit about the background of the creation of this piece. You know, it was created in 2017 with NMAP, which is Slovenian, I would say, probably most well-known, most renowned contemporary dance ensemble. Tell us a little bit about how you came to be connected with NMAP and what it was like working with them. Well, the, the artistic director, Istav Kovac, kept inviting us to come and work with his company for several years. 
And since we were working on life and times at the moment, we could never really see ourselves leaving the project. And then we were in Graz finishing the project, and we were kind of left with nothing to do for the next couple of years. And uh, it just happens that Ljubljana is about an hour away from Graz. And so he came over, and we talked, and then he took us over there to uh, meet the dancers. We fell in love with them and uh, went from there. We went there for a couple of weeks and did a workshop with them to, to figure out if, if we are all a good match. And then we went home and we wrote we wrote the script and then came back and worked with them for uh, two more pe rehearsal periods and created the show. And, you know, our, our focus changed after Life in Times. We've, we've been working on these recorded telephone conversations for 10 years. And then we wanted to change direction and uh, try something that we weren't good at. So we really wanted to do writing. And because these people were dancers and had never really spoken on stage, we chose the most impossible task for them, which is uh, speaking as difficult a language as possible. And you know, at least one of the first part of the of the show is written in iambic pentameter, which we also had never written before. And so we just we just all tried to really uh, challenge ourselves and take ourselves out of our comfort zone and. That's that's what you get then. Yeah, I mean the surprise for us was we we made it over the course of two years, going back and forth um, many times, and uh, they they kept us on our toes because every time we went there and gave them something difficult to do and came back, they had kind of exceeded our expectations. The the one thing dancers know how to do is work hard, and so they would work on the text in our absence, and then we you know we kept kind of having to reinvent the piece as we as we went hmm. and, and adding layers of difficulty so I, I, I had to bring a lot of chewing tobacco to slovenia <laughs> because they learned how to speak so we needed to somehow slow them down and and uh make it more difficult so they all are most of them right now are chewing uh tobacco or real tobacco so which at the beginning caused most of them during rehearsals to be fainting and passing out and throwing up Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I, I'm curious if the idea for the themes in the piece came more from your end or if um, Isak was originally thinking about these when he wanted to work with you. No, it came from our end. I mean, we have, after Life in Times, we have focused on going to a place and staying there for a while and really trying to figure out what is necessary for that particular place and making the work for the place and about the place. So we had made a, a film, Nibelungen, in the area where the story of Nibelungen happened. We went to uh, Berlin and Cologne and, and researched and did work based on that research. And then we went to Austria to make our last film to work in the in a in a in the countryside and and made the work about that and this was the same you know we had been traveling with our shows one week here one week there constantly just on the road and felt 
completely disconnected from the place and really wanted to, uh, and it felt like we were just doing exhibition games where we just uh, showed the work that we had made someplace else and didn't really feel like it's necessary or, or integral to the place or needed. So we wanted to change our lifestyle and go to a place, stay there, make the work there and about the place. So we went to, to Slovenia and really kind of tried to figure out what is needed here. It all came from us. We weren't told what to do. Yeah, and of course we bring our own preoccupations with us, and you know, over the course of that two years there was a lot of stuff happening in America that unnerved us, and sometimes, you know, when you go and, you know, we were living in Ljubljana for, for periods of time, and with that distance you kind of look at things differently than when you're when you're living there. We felt we felt very American, and out of you know out of our context, we were kind of able to think about some of those issues. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about the research process of thinking about you know the pursuit of happiness as this myth that really undergirds so much of American consciousness, both in the colonial era, which us being located in Old City in Philadelphia, I feel like we see all the time, but also for people who live all over the nation, I think that sense of, like, the American dream and, like, you're really successful when you're doing what you love, which is one of the, uh, something that one of the characters speaks about in the work. What was your research process like in digging into that, essentially? Well, I think, I think for this piece, I mean, it started out as more of a personal look at happiness and trying to trying to find it we were in a bit of a a personal hole and also i would be lying if i if i said that you know we did a lot of research and that this work comes out of research i mean for us mainly we usually start with a meeting point and in this case it happened to be an old 1930s book that somebody had given us called cowboy dances which we kind of just took in our baggage thinking that like maybe a place to start is with dancers with dance and it's these really hard to imagine descriptions of where it dances and we we just kind of like tried to wade wade our way through this language but it happened to be with the dancers but it happened to be somewhat western themed and i mean even the bar came from the fact that there was a ballet bar in the room so the bar started as a b a r r e and then you know as you go these things kind of layer on top of each other and morph and um and then you follow the ideas that kind of present themselves rather than starting from ideas. Almost after the fact, you, you figure it out. When you're making work, you try to stay as open as possible to your intuition and instinct, and you're, you're trying to respond to different types of information. I mean, we did watch Westerns, and we, we did, I think especially Kelly was reading a lot of theoretical books or articles on American identity and myth of the cowboy in the outlaw but when you're when you're in rehearsal it's it's a much more intuitive process and then you can talk about it afterwards then once you have uh, hours of material then you see what do you have and then you shape it according to something that you feel like is relevant to the world and it becomes yet something else yeah, I mean, and it, it starts usually from personal and and also kind of just utilitarian, like what's in the room, who's in the room, keeping keeping your eyes open. And I was really struck by one of the lines that the dancer says pretty early on in the piece that happiness is always in the past, mutated form of melancholy. And 
you know, hearing you all talk about the process of developing the work, it makes me think so much of its relationship to your larger body of work with Nature Theater of Oklahoma and kind of this sense of, I can imagine you all, when you finished Slice and Times, that was such a huge series, um, both in its construction and the amount of time that you spent on it. That's actually when you were last at France in 2013 with that series. And I wonder what that sense of melancholy has with happiness, both in terms of your own progression as a company, but also more broadly in thinking of even slogans like, make America great again, uh, that might refer to a greatness that America had in the past, whether that was actually true or probably not. Definitely, we we had come to a point in our work where, yeah, where we we kind of broke ourselves a little bit on this on this monumental piece of work that was ten episodes long and over sixteen hours in performance, and we had such ambition for for what we were doing, but it completely wrecked all of us physically, emotionally, mentally, and and yeah, we were we were definitely in the aftermath of that, just thinking about at what cost. <laughs> Yeah, especially when you when you make theater, you, you put ten we put ten years of work and our life and our health into the project, and then you then you look at what what is left, and and you you end up with three bags of dirty costumes in your basement. That that doesn't feel like you've really accomplished much in ten years. So you you really have serious existential questions about whether all this makes any sense. We are American artists, and we want to work in America, and we. We we want to be able to speak to this culture and be be a part of the discourse, and when it takes such an effort, you know, thank God Nick Stuccio and two others have brought the work of Life and Times to their festivals. But other than that, we don't feel like our work here is what was relevant or or really needed, necessary, and it might have been just self pity or. Um, it felt that way to us, and so we really we we wanted to almost hide in Slovenia, away from a kind of spotlight, and just really focus on the work itself and where does the pleasure lie? It's it's like we felt the same way we felt before we made No Dice, which also had uh, Nick brought to to Philadelphia, mm-hmm. uh, where we rejected any kind of ambition. Of success, but where we focused on just the work itself. So this was, and No Dice was a new beginning for us, and and this pursuit of happiness was also a new beginning for us, where we really asked these serious existential questions of why we make work and should we continue to do it. So while you're, you know, working on this piece that is centered around American values, you know, most of your tour has been outside of the U.S. So. And curious, what has the reception been in other countries? I, it's not a surprise, but you know, a lot of a lot of other countries do follow um, American politics. It's it's not like whatever we do just happens here. You know, we're we're out there in the world, and we do change things out there in the world for other people. And also, this this kind of political process that's been happening here is also mirrored in in many ways in places like. Germany and Poland, and it, it's happening everywhere. And so I think they recognize themselves in it. And yeah, it's not foreign. It's not foreign to them. It's not like they're looking at something that has no meaning for them. But for us, it's it's super important to do it back home. I I feel grateful that we get to take it to Philadelphia. 
Well, I'm curious if you guys have any ideas. You know, I got in New York almost two years ago now, and so much has changed, even in those past two years, within American politics, but as you see, Kelly, really on an international stage, as many countries Brexit comes to mind in particular, are considering some of the same challenges that we are here in America. And I wonder, do you imagine that the work might be received differently now, you know, 18, 24 months later? Or might there be aspects of it that hit audiences differently or might? Yeah, there's aspects of it that come into focus for me differently every time we do it, certainly like after the school shootings, after every school shooting. You know, just the amount of guns on stage and the the use of violence to kind of solve every problem rings especially strongly. But at the same time, you know, you talk about, like, how different things in the world change. Sometimes it's it's also how many things in the world don't change. I mean, all of the stuff in Iraq, insert different country here, but the same story, the same thing going on, some kind of proxy war somewhere. So... The more things change, the more things stay the same as well. Hey, Zach, are you ready to party? Always. Fringe Arts is kicking off opening weekend of the 2019 Fringe Festival with a late night rager, featuring the illustrious Blacks, a dynamic out-of-this-world duo, fusing music, dance, theater, and fashion. Come join us on Friday, September 6th at 10.30 in Lepeg. That sounds great. Then, halfway through the festival, we're throwing a halftime party with DJ Heavenly. It's called Feels. Stripping back genres and themes, DJ Heavenly and a special guest do what feels right at this open format dance party. That'll be September 14th at 10.30pm in Lepeg. And then, to close out the festival, Johnny Showcase and the Mystic Ticket will be joining us on Saturday, September 21st at 10.30pm with an electrifying performance you just don't want to miss. See you there. Um, You mentioned violence, and I'd love to touch on that within the context of this piece because there is this juxtaposition of, like, the old-timey Western bar fights and and shootouts, but then also contemporary military activity in Iraq. In what ways have you found that violence is interwoven into the ideas of what it means to be American and to this idea of the pursuit of happiness? I, I think what to me rings true to me personally or what this is, the kind of violence of imposing your will upon other people, even if it has a kind of altruistic sense, definitely for me thinking personally about, you know, the company and imposing my own pursuit of happiness onto other people and dragging them along with me into my dream. You know, it's like not everybody in the end wanted to travel the world and do this really difficult show night after night that we were doing. And in a similar way, one of the characters in in this show kind of drags everyone else along into his dream, which becomes a kind of a nightmare. So, And in the way that the U.S. sometimes with ostensibly good intentions, kind of medals in foreign countries in a way that um, mm-hmm. doesn't always have a happy ending. With good intentions. We want yeah. to spread democracy. Yeah. So we're going <laughs> to beat, beat you up into it. We're going to beat you into having a better life. Well, what was so striking to me when I saw the piece originally is that the violence was received kind of in two different registers simultaneously, which I think speaks to really the American paradigm in a lot of different ways. You know, some people, when they saw the violence, found it really funny, actually. You can tell that it's stage combat. Nobody's actually getting punched. 
there are all these amazing sound effects that kind of mimic cartoons. And the, like, blood that comes out in the latter part of the work is actually, like, bright red streamers. And I think much of the work talks about this sense of the role of violence and its depictions in popular media, but also even in staged theatrical works. And I know that there's been there's just been a lot of discussion in the last two to three years about what it means to depict violence and who is being depicted in that moment. And I think in the pursuit of happiness, one one of the things I think it's been successful at is showing violence that is kind of unnerving in its depiction, where like we're not actually seeing blood and guts on stage, but in realizing how perhaps possibly comical it is, it makes at least made me very uncomfortable, which I think was kind of the point. I thought that was very effective. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting challenge and something that I think has preoccupied us in the last several pieces that we've made after this, just how impossible it is to represent violence in the theater. It necessarily has to be theatricalized, and it's it's never convincing like it is on television or, or movies. You can't make it look convincing, and so what do you what do you do with that kind of impossibility? I like it as just the potential for somehow pure theater, or yeah, you know, I like the unconvincingness of it. Well, it kind of gets me back to I think that one of the central questions of the work, which we touched on a little bit earlier. But, you know, what is the role of art? You know, which is this, like, awful hard question that I feel like we wrestle with every single day when we come to work, and that I'm sure you all do as well as you decide to recreate another work. Who do we create the work with? Why are we making it? Um, and I appreciated in the second half of the piece when we're kind of moving into this nightmare, as you described it, Kelly, there's a moment when it seems like, oh, this dance that's happening might the peacekeeping mechanism between NATO and Iraqi insurgent forces. And then ultimately that totally spirals into chaos, but it offers for a brief moment the sense of art as a way to solve a very tangible problem, which I think art very rarely, if ever, actually does. Um, so as you continue to present this work, how have you, how have your thoughts about that question shifted, if at all? I think we're always kind of in this balancing act between our hopes for what we do and and also like just not being able to kid ourselves entirely that it that it does do those things that we that we wish it does. Well, I think the work itself is in a way a quest for relevance. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a kind of desire to be part of the discourse, to be, you know, almost like in, in ancient Greek theater where where the theater itself was a place where the society came to dream of itself and discuss the irrational in our life, whereas the irrational seems to be repressed. We're repressing the irrational nature of life, whether it's in politics or even in even on television, where where it could be a part of the conversation. But a lot of probably 95% of all life is irrational. We don't understand anything we we deny the fact that we we don't really know why we're here and what what we're doing and if aliens are watching us from outer space they have no idea what the hell we're trying to even do and we don't we just kind of convince ourselves that we're doing something that's important whereas it may not be important at all <laughs> and that's what we every day we go to into rehearsal trying to answer that question, why are we doing this? And then 
if it's not important inherently, which as American artists we always believe, you know, sometimes we work with people in Europe who have state subsidies and they they're told that art is important, but we don't believe that because we we are spending most of our year in our apartment in our underwear at the bottom of society where nobody's willing to even acknowledge that we we exist or that art is important. So we we certainly have have our doubts and so so if if we consider that it's inherently not necessarily important what we do, we have to create that value. And in wow. performance, we try to do that. I mean, I think every night we're trying to articulate what that is with an audience, you know, what this can be good for and who needs it. That's that's in a way part of the actor's job. Mm-hmm. It's like we I always mean, have to undercut the actors and tell them, like, look, what you're doing is nothing. It's it's shit. You're just kind of dancing around and, and prancing on stage like uh, show ponies in a good way. You know, it's not we're, we're not like cutting them down psychologically, but but to kind of convince them that to have that doubt. You know, and that's why it's always it's always interesting for us to work with Americans because they they know that. You know, every every American person who's who's tried to be an actor or, or performing artist knows that you got to go out there and work your ass off in order for for something to happen whereas Americans sometimes take it for granted that they're on stage Europeans. and therefore Europeans yeah that they're on stage and therefore it's important so we have to somehow create this existential crisis for them in order for them to be able to talk about these issues and in order for them to really like look out over the footlights and somehow express those doubts to an audience and and to kind of enlist in their help in the search for that importance or in the search for what it could mean tonight, not just in a rehearsal room. Yeah, well, I think that that's a really interesting transition to our final question, thinking about what inspires you and specifically your highbrow and lowbrow inspirations as you go into the the rehearsal room and start coming up with, you know, whatever your next idea is. Uh, for for this particular piece, I, I know I was reading War and Peace, especially the war sections, as far as highbrow is concerned. Lowbrow, we were watching spaghetti westerns and things like that. You know, in general, for the, for the work, I would say really horrible American television. The Bachelor and The Bachelorette are our all-time favorite, and the and Survivor. As far as yeah. lowbrow, you know, reality television, which in a way was what Life and Times was based on. You know, they're just recordings of things that happen, and then you shape them, just like in a reality TV show, in a series. You know, so Life and Times, ten episodes. It was like a Big Brother TV TV series in a in a way. You know, I personally find inspiration in literature. You know, Proust, Tolstoy. Yeah, and I mean the, the the highbrow stuff. I guess I was reading during this was um, a book on Grand Guignol, and also this book of cultural criticism by David Warshaw. Um, that was there was a great essay called "The Gangster as Tragic Hero," and also um, "The Westerner." These were these were two essays on two different genres in, in American film because we were thinking a lot about filmmaking at that time. It was mainly about how the Western could be seen as, as a genre that was interrogating kind of American morality, uh, and that was interesting for me to think about, and the gangster the gangster film as well, that those were two kind of flip sides of American moral works. 
and both of them equally, you know, horribly violent. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Happy Hour on the Fringe. The Pursuit of Happiness will be presented at the Mandel Theater at Drexel University September 20th and 21st as part of the 2019 Fringe Festival. In addition to the performances, we will also be screening Nature Theater of Oklahoma's video, Life and Times, Episode 7, in partnership with White Box Film Center on September 17th. And if you want to hear more from Pavel and Kelly, along with members of NNAF, new community partners here in Philly, about what the pursuit of happiness means today, join us for a conversation at our Fringe Festival Bookstore on Cherry Street Pier on Saturday, September 21st. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram, and download the Fringe Arts app.